0: Welcome, we're here with uh, Isabelle Deschamps, the Chief Legal Officer of Rio Tinto. Isabel, thank you for taking the time.
1: You're very welcome and uh, very nice to see you.
0: Isabel, you are Chief Legal Officer, but you also have responsibility for corporate affairs, for governance and a whole lot of other things that don't fit easily into a title because it just gets too long. Can you tell us a little bit about the scope of your responsibilities at Rio Tinto?
1: You're right, my, my talk will be a, a little bit too long. So my responsibilities include uh, everything legal, everything ethics and integrity, but also corporate governance, some technical governance team as well, and uh, communication, external affairs, public affairs, and also our um, confidential uh, line where employees can actually raise their concerns with us.
0: So, that's a broad area of responsibility, really, so many of the external affairs functions. A lot of companies don't bring this together. Why has Rio Tinto, under your leadership, brought all of these different functions together legal, communications, corporate affairs, ethics, integrity, compliance? What's the rationale?
1: Well, there's an interesting uh, actually combination because you could think actually some of these functions and roles are conflicting with each other. Um, When you talk about communication, you're talking about transparency, you think about legal, you think, oh, defense. But actually, that's not the way we see it. Uh, We see that all these functions actually can create a positive tension, but also help us to really uh, get to the right uh, decision making by having this positive conflict between uh, different roles and responsibilities. So it actually felt pretty natural when uh, Jakob asked me to combine these, uh, these roles and different functions under, under my team, under my leadership. And I'm actually getting the benefit of the different diverse voices and different roles that people play and different perspectives. So actually that really helps us to view things in a different way.
0: So is it fair to say you are in charge of just a lot of stakeholder engagement and, and stakeholder management? Is that fair?
1: Yeah, that's quite fair. Actually, my life is about uh, doing stakeholder management and, and, and listening, learning from stakeholders understanding their needs, their expectations, and then navigating the world around that, uh, whether it's governments, whether it's uh, traditional owners, indigenous groups, communities, whether it's actually going more in the litigious side as well with expectations of, of a different nature. So it is around managing sh- stakeholders at all levels, yes.
0: So what are some of the issues that come up as you're dealing with this broad range of stakeholders?
1: I've been at uh, Rio Tinto for a little bit over a year now and I have to say the variety of issues and matters to deal with have been incredible. It has been from uh uh, working and, and listening to concerns of employees through Everyday Respect, uh, the Everyday Respect report and, uh, that we, we have published. It's been around uh, dealing with uh, a multiple of uh, stakeholders and, and partners located close to our assets, like in Mongolia, in Guinea, in some difficult jurisdictions, but also in jurisdictions which are a little bit easier to navigate, like Canada or Australia.
0: So, broad geographic scope, uh, but also internal, you were referring to Everyday Respect. Can you say a little bit about this initiative, which is really quite pioneering, not just in the mining industry, but more broadly in in the world of multinational business?
1: Yeah, the Everyday Respect uh, review and investigation work that was done at Rio Tinto took place actually was started before my time, Uh, so I won't take the credit for that, we had some very good visionary people that, when they started listening to some of our employees, uncovered that they ha- there were some concerns that needed to be looked into. When I, I joined, actually, I started uh, receiving some of that information and that those reviews, uh, surveys, uh, listening sessions that had been done with employees and it was actually quite heartbreaking to see some of this and hear some of the stories that were coming through. And we were supported along the way with by experts. We had Liz Broderick and her team uh, supporting us to, to carry out this, this review and, and they issued a, a report which I thought was, uh, again, heart- heartbreaking but uh, really uh, enlightening in some of the practices and the culture that uh, probably existed uh, at Rio Tinto and we needed to tackle this as a, as a company but also as executive coming in. I felt a real duty to, uh, to do something with that.
0: And then you did something brave which is to publish the report to be entirely transparent. And, and I just have to assume, perhaps there was the communication side in you that said you got to be transparent, engage people, build trust, and perhaps there was a legal side of you that said, whoa, I, I'm not so sure we, we want to share all of that. Is, did that play out in this way or was it just very clear what you had to do as a leadership team?
1: Now all of that plays uh, for sure, and you have to consider the different, uh, the different advice that you're getting and, and the expert telling you. So for sure there will be some potentially some different views coming in from the communication, coming in from the public affairs saying we need to work with the governments, only the governments can do something about it. The legal team feeling possibly a little bit more concerned, We're go- are we going to have a lot of claims coming out of it? But actually, when we sat down with the executive, all these different questions play out as well, and, and you have to consider all of it. So it took us quite some time, actually, to first digest the stories and, and really understand what was going on, what some of the data was telling us. So you have to go through the a little bit the acceptance of it, so you go through the phases of anger, not recognizing, really questioning the data, to then listening to the different experts. And then slowly, in a way, emerged a real desire to go public. We felt we needed to be transparent. We needed to do it, though, in the right way, so we wanted to be super respectful of the people that had shared their stories. So we were concerned about, at one point, the publication of the whole report because that included very personal stories. So we had that as well as uh, some of the dilemmas that you have to deal with when you're confronted with something like that.
0: I'm sure that was a challenging moment. What are some other... Difficult aspects of your job as you're working across these different jurisdictions, these different stakeholders, these different issues?
1: Lots lots of challenges because first of all, you, you need to know the countries where you're operating. And all the countries have got a different history, long history. Histories that created the way the their, their legal system, their public systems, their, their governments are set up. So you really need to understand that and the culture behind it. And therefore, I think every country has got their difficulty, whether it's around the rule of law, whether it's around uh, representations of the different communities, uh, whether it's the voices of some of these communities, whether it's the policy making as well. So we're having to navigate each of these countries all the time. The most important in my job is to uh, really listen, understand, try to understand uh, the different voices that are coming through and then really supporting the team and making the right decisions for the moment, but also for the long term. Because in the case of Rio Tinto, we're dealing with assets that will be there for years and years and years, much beyond us and uh, beyond the next generation. So we need to make sure that we're doing the right thing for the long term.
0: So this long-term horizon of the investments of the assets, I suspect that's one way in which Mining is different. You, you joined Rio Tinto a year ago. You said you were at, at Axel Nobel before at Unilever. You were down the street at, at Nestlé. How, how is mining different as an industry and what are the implications for somebody in your role?
1: It felt very different when I joined. I had to learn a lot, um, which is the beauty of coming into this role. And then you see all the different aspects. In a way, what was very different at the time, and but we're also learning from other industries, is uh, in consumer goods and in the other industries, you're very close to what the consumers are telling you. You're very close to the population and the needs of consumers. In mining and processing, you feel much more removed from it. Uh, You're up the chain uh, very much. But what we are trying to get into, and we're doing that, we've done it through the Everyday Respect report, but we're doing that also through our culture transformation, is to really get closer to what people need and what people will need in the future as well. Uh, So it is no longer just about mining and digging the ground and, and providing some materials. We need to give the right materials that the world will need in the future. And that's been an important learning journey, not only for me coming in new, but actually for our leadership and for our leaders in the organization. We're all learning every day.
0: Mining is also, traditional, at least, a very male-dominated industry. Are there special challenges for you as a woman to be very often the sort of face and, and voice you know, and ears of the organization?
1: It's a very good question, actually. It's and I, I was a little bit concerned when I joined, and I felt, oh, am I going to be the only voice, female voice, in the, in the executive? And actually, I've got some wonderful colleagues in the executive as well, so I'm not the only uh, female voice. And also at leadership, there's actually quite a lot of uh, women as well. But it is, you know, an industry that's been um, very male-dominated over time. Also, you know, maybe not enough representations from some of the communities and indigenous groups that uh, we are, uh, we should be representing because we are operating on on lands where they have cultural connections and assets. So bringing these voices in are super important for us and we're doing that extra effort of bringing the voices in. Uh, But I was very clear at the beginning that I said if I'm joining, I'm not going to be a token uh, uh, voice in, in the room. I need to have my voice and I need to bring my own diversity. To the table, and I felt and I felt very welcome and listened to actually from the very beginning in the, in this team because actually the culture is also about listening. So it is it's been very welcoming in that in that sense.
0: So when you're out there, when you're in one of the communities in which you operate, you visit a country, you're dealing with different stakeholders, right? You have traditional owners, as you mentioned. You have governments. You know, you have your employees. You might have your suppliers. You might have other governments elsewhere in markets in which you sell your commodities. And so it's important to listen to different stakeholders, but of course, sometimes there's conflict among these different stakeholders and you end up in a situation where you may have to mediate among them or find ways of bridging that conflict. How do you deal with stakeholder conflict? I think that's one thing that a lot of executives struggle with as they're trying to respond to different stakeholders. They realize that, well, those stakeholders often don't agree with one another and you end up stuck in the middle as a business.
1: You're absolutely right. And this is a this is a challenge. But the first challenge is actually that you have to really listen to what the stakeholders are saying, truly saying. Because actually, at time, there are some connections and there are some conflicts that are perceived, but do not really exist in reality. So I think it's been very important for me in my journey at, uh, at Rio to sit down, for example, with civil society. They have a big voice, they have uh, their own views, understanding what their needs, for example, in the decarbonisation, the just transition. What, what, what are their expectations? Sitting down with governments as well and understanding again where they're, where they're coming from. Sitting down with employees and all of the groups have got different views and sometimes, yes, it is conflicting. What I think the beauty is and what we're you know, I've been trying to do is to actually share sometimes the dilemma that this causes us. The dilemma of having to deal with decarbonization and just transition. It is not easy to do it in a fast way if you don't have the government on your side and you don't have your the traditional owners and the communities alongside and working in partnership. So we have to be able to share the dilemma and What I found very interesting is by sharing these dilemmas, solutions come as well from your various stakeholders. So it is not only about listening, but it's about truly partnering to get to these solutions. They're not easy solutions and none of these debates are going to be easy and we don't have the solutions. But I think together we can find some solutions which will will align the stars between the different stakeholders.
0: The stereotypical view of business often is that it's all about competition, winner takes all, zero sum, and sometimes people not unfairly accuse business schools of perhaps contributing to that, but you just spoke about partnership, about bringing people together. Is there a different set of skills that is required to be effective in the stakeholder engagement space that perhaps not all executives have and that they have to develop?
1: Yeah, I do think so, I think, uh, and some leaders have it, and some f- leaders it's been, it's been covered a little bit. And, uh, you know, when you're under pressure to deliver and on, 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 the, on something, on the objective, on the what, you tend to sometimes forget how you do things. Um, so I think there's some, definitely some skills that uh, resonate and help us to navigate that difficult stakeholder mapping and environment where we think there's conflict. I think a lot of it is around showing some empathy, empathy, care for the people uh, you're dealing with, understanding and listening. So being curious about where they're coming from, their culture, their their challenges, their pain, their dilemmas, and and really just sometimes just doing things together and having that courage of doing it together. So I think these are skills that sometimes we feel are, are suppressed in leaders. I see it more and more in leaders as I I grow in the in my career so I think it's a it's a good thing that leaders are now also able to live, be a little bit vulnerable and I think that vulnerability is good to make the right decisions to think about where we want to go together
0: There's some business leaders who will tell you I hope all of this stakeholder scrutiny is going to go away maybe this is just this one moment right now you know soon I can go back to just running my business without worrying as much about the community and politics and the environment and all of that. Do you think that's realistic?
1: No, it's not realistic at all. <laughs> and actually, I don't want this to go away. I think it's, it is it's important for us to, to make the longer, better long-term decisions that will help um, us, our gender generation. So I feel very comfortable, I think, in that environment, which is a little bit sometimes chaotic a bit conflicting a little bit you know unknown and i think we have to get used to that unknown a lot more than in the past what is different and again will not go away is all the stakeholder management is needs to be really in real time we can no longer wait for you know, the next publication of a report on something to start engaging, we need to do it continuously. And that puts a lot of pressure on leaders because you need to listen, you need to take that time and uh, it won't go away. Social media is there as well, so things get happened on on the spot and you need to be able to answer the questions transparently and and knowing where where you want to go. So having a broader purpose is important as well, I think.
0: So you mentioned the real-time nature of all of this. I I can't help but ask you about this. Earlier this year, uh, you and your colleagues were dealing with an emergency in Australia about a, a radioactive capsule that went missing. Can you talk a little bit about what happened, but also then how a crisis situation like this impacts you and your team?
1: Yeah, these, these situations are very unfortunate, actually. So I was actually on the plane to Australia when it happened, so completely by coincidence, to Western Australia and, uh, and visiting the Pilbara as well. So when we get news like that, you're missing a radioactive capsule. I mean, the first thing that comes to your mind and, and you mobilize yourself to think about the safety. So what uh, is it safe? Is it safe for people? Who would pick it up? Or where could it be? Where we actually immediately engage is that, again, it's not something you can do on your own. And you need to be very open and transparent about what happens. So okay, we we, we lost a capsule. We immediately worked with um, the government who have been, so it's been actually an an incredible partnership to to really find this capsule. That's the first thing to do, and to address the concerns of of people that could have encountered this, this capsule and give information as much as possible. So being able to go transparently, work with partnerships, work with the communities, so that was our first, our first priority. And I think it, we found it, and, and it's unbelievable to think about if you think about the distance between where this capsule was put in a box and where it was going, the distance in kilometres, and it was found because of that partnerships with uh, the government. So nobody saw the government as any enemy in this. It's, we saw the government as a real partner, and that worked really well, actually. So difficult situations, you have to pause and you have to think about what's the what's, what you need to achieve. And what we need to achieve is safety for everyone.
0: I know trust is really important to you. You speak a lot about this. In situations like this, when you are transparent, you reach out, you partner, can you leverage situations like this also to, to strengthen trust that stakeholders have? How, how do you think more broadly about how your actions contribute to the kind of trust that stakeholders have vis-a-vis you?
1: Well, trust is not built overnight, and I have to say that uh, when I joined Rio Tinto and I looked at some of the events of the past, Ikeuken Gorge, which was a, a very dramatic event which was devastating as well, and when you look at uh, Again, some of the culture, the, store, the stories that came out, which are things you never want to see in your, your business. I have to say these really impact the trust. And it's, it's, it's fair to say that it should, to be honest, because we're all human. We want to trust the right things to happen all the time. So yes, trust gets eroded. And, and I think we need as leaders and as organization to build the trust day in, day out, every day, every day, every day, and give proof points uh, that we can be trusted. It's a difficult one. We can do it by being transparent, fair, equitable, trying to do the right right thing. There will be things that happen here and there that erode that trust. But the more we work again with the various stakeholders, I think, that helps us to build that that trust longer term.
0: You and your colleagues spend a lot of time with indigenous communities with traditional owners. Why is that important to you personally? And why is that so important to Rio Tinto?
1: Well, for me personally, it's uh, I'm, I'm Canadian. I'm from a mixed uh, background as well, indigenous background. So I feel very strongly about the voice of the voice of an Ind- indigenous uh, community. So that's from my personal point of view, but also as, as Rio and in a way I joined Rio also to be able to bring that voice, I think it's an important voice to have at the table. So I'm very proud to be able to you know share some of that. Why it's so important to Rio as we actually operate like many other industries, but especially in, in the mining and processing of, of materials, We operate on, on the land. Either of traditional owners, or where there's cultural heritage which has been there for thousands and thousands a year, whether it's uh, lakes or whether it's waterholes or whether it's trees and how it's positioned. What I mean, there's heritage paintings, uh, crafts. It's all there, and we need to really respect it and therefore we need to work very very closely with uh, the indigenous and the traditional owners to understand and protect it for the long term. So very personally I feel very personally involved and as a company I think we have we have to really listen and to understand uh, where this cultural heritage protection needs to happen.
0: Are the challenges and opportunities related to engaging with indigenous communities? Are they similar in, say, Australia and Canada and in South America? Do, do they vary a lot? How do you, you, you have this sort of privileged view in some ways by, by looking at some of these issues, if you will, in a, in a comparative way.
1: I tend not to compare personally because I think every, again, like uh, any country, any indigenous group will have its own culture and its own heritage and its own voice and, and history. But there are some definitely some some commonalities in some parts of the world where some of the indigenous voices have not been heard and they had, had not the, right, the same rights than other communities. So that voices unheard is something that really I take at, at heart, uh, that I see and in many countries to be honest now there's been a lot of work done to Uh, listen, to understand the history, to give back the voice. Um, That's why I'm very keen for us also to go as a company, we go much more into co-management, partnerships, what can we do together in biodiversity, for example, I think there's some huge opportunities there to partner, which we haven't got all the answers to yet, and I think we we need to explore much more and to to listen to to voices uh, much more, but I think we'll we'll get there, and step by step, we'll 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 get more voices at the table. I'm I'm sure.
0: We seem to be in an era where governments are asserting themselves, perhaps because of the experience of the pandemic, perhaps because great power conflict is back. But it seems to be the case that governments have. Uh, stronger points of view about views about control of resources over supply chains, over investments. Who gets to invest where? Do you notice that kind of a shift? And and if so, how, how are you dealing with it as a global company?
1: For sure, we see some some shifts. I mean, there's there's a lot of geopolitics uh, coming coming into play uh, right now. There's uh, some some moments of tension, some moments of less tension. But actually, if I I look at it and I was doing a lot of reading on the history of Rio Tinto uh, recently and uh, because we're celebrating our 150th anniversary uh, this year, which is uh, which is quite uh, quite unbelievable. But when you look at that history and there's been these movements and ups and downs and geopolitics and tension, and I think as a company, we've survived all of that by probably keeping the North Star of what we're doing. And we're not there to replace governments, we're not there to replace the role of communities and, and, and voices, um, but we're there to provide materials and, and the materials the world needs. So that's, that's, that's who we are. So I think that really helps us to if we, again, partner with the government irrespective of politics or anything, we partner for, to provide these materials. And I think that get, that really helps us to navigate all the different uh, uncertainty of the, of the world.
0: So with the benefit of somebody who deals with diverse stakeholders for a living and has now caught up on the history of the company and has perhaps learned a couple of interesting lessons about how you navigate these challenges as they arise, what is your advice for business leaders who are finding themselves in an environment that seems more political, that seems more conflictive, that seems more turbulent. What, what do you say to them about how to get ahead of the curve?
1: What I would say, and, and it's uh, you know, it's it's difficult that I'm still learning a lot. And I think as leaders, we, we still learn every day and we should be in a, in a bit humble in the way that we know nothing and we have everything to learn. But what I would say is to, uh, uh, listen, <laughs> listen to all the, the, the stakeholders. Their voices may change as well over time, so I think we shouldn't assume things. We should just continue to be curious. It's not about one moment in time. It is about also looking at what you're trying to achieve and whether you're in the food industry like I was before and in, in, in personal care, whether it's in paint or whether it's in the business of, uh, of, of mining, you're there to fulfill a purpose in society. And I think it's important to keep that purpose at heart, what you're trying to achieve, and really listening to the voices at the table. I think it's for, it's actually quite extraordinary in our case that we've got different voices at the leadership team, that everybody's got an equal voice and can say when they disagree and when they agree, be accepting of the the conflict in a way, embracing that conflict, because I think that helps us to make better decisions and help us to listen better to what's happening in in the world. So I would say really be curious, continue to be curious and continue to learn. And I'll, I'll try to do the same.
0: So you don't need to have all the answers. In fact, the point is to admit that you don't have all the answers and to engage in dialogue with stakeholders and find solutions together.
1: Correct. And listening to the experts, I mean, it's very important, to We have fantastic people that are much better than us and should be much better than us in, their, in what they're doing. Uh, we've got f- uh, formidable people that, uh, in my case, do the, uh, the, the public affairs engagement, and they come with uh, extremely good insight um, as to what, to what to do, what to address. The same thing with the, our teams dealing with uh, the communities. They go, and that's their, their job, so listening to these experts and the people that are on the ground doing it every day and capturing these, these different insights. For us, after that, it is again, again looking at the different conflicting views and ensuring we're truthful to our, to our, to our, our North Star and maintaining the, the cap a little bit. And one of the things is I think in, in companies like, huge companies like us, where you're navigating in difficult environments as well, there can be a lot of noise and it can be, you can get really stuck in busyness of stuff <laughs> happening. And it's always good to take the time to pause and reflect and uh, think about what, again, you're trying to achieve, not to lose that North Star. And we're all human beings, so we tend to just go and get on with things. Uh, but the most important is just to elevate yourself a little bit and rethink, is this right? Is this right for the people? Is this right for the stakeholders? Is this just right for our employees? The different stakeholders so that's also what i would say
0: it's a perfect place to leave it isabel thank you so much for sharing your insights with us thank you for the great work that you and your team are doing and all the best
1: thank you very much